Welcome to the intersection of theater and even more theater. You have achieved stage grok. Theater podcast coming to you from the Geographic Center of the American Theater. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Today I talk with author Andy Probst about his book, They Made Us Happy, Betty Comden and Adolf Green's Musicals and Movies. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, I just finished your book, and I love it. Um, and the first thing I want to ask you about is, for people who don't know Betty Comden and Adolf Green, give us a a quick summary of why they're important and why why we need a book about them. Uh, why are Betty and Adolf, as I've come to think of them, important? And before <laughs> I go there, I want to say thank you for uh, your kind words about the book. Uh, Betty and Adolf brought a new kind of humor to musical theater. Uh, they had actually both begun their lives thinking they were going to be performers. And uh, they ended up, while they were still in their 20s, working in a sketch comedy group uh, called The Reviewers. And as Betty was wont to say over and over and over again, when they started this group, they performed other people's material for a couple of performances, then found out they'd need to pay royalties. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they, they chipped in what they were going to spend and bought a pencil and started writing their own material. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, these two people who she had trained at NYU in acting and actually got some fantastic reviews in summer stock out on Long Island, and he had been pursuing a career trying to start on Broadway as a performer, they were doing the performing thing and writing their own material. And uh, they took off like nobody's business. It was the late 1930s. They were performing at the Village Vanguard in Lower Manhattan, still there today. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody who was anyone was going to see their work, which was satirizing everything from uh, Hitler to to, uh, the, the operetta. Uh, one of my favorite things once they ended up on radio was they did an entire parody of the Our Town mentality, but it was about Rockefeller Center and all of the theatrical <laughs> businesses that you were going to find inside there. In any event, it was this kind of – at that point, I think that the best way I can describe it is they were doing a weekly show down there. It was kind of like they were writing their own Saturday Night Live. That was something that had not come to musical theater. And so when, seven years later, they were approached by Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins about collaborating on the musical that became On the Town, that sense of 
lovingly teasing New York and the ballet world and all of the wondrous things that you find that are you know part and parcel of New York City, that became something that was new to musical theater. And they also set themselves a very high bar. They wanted to make sure that they integrated it into a, a musical where it was seamless between dance and music and book. And that's why I think that On the Town still survives to this day. It's a giddy romp that, <laughs> yes, <it is. laughs> it, that, that somehow manages to be impish and smart. And that is what was their first foray into musical theater and what they brought. And they continued to bring that then until, uh, what was it, 1991, when Will Rogers Follies. They last and, you know, on Broadway. I, I think for me, when I go back to some of the older shows, <clears throat> I think what really strikes me is they feel sort of innocent and playful, but they're also really cynical and ironic and sarcastic and 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 I don't know, it, they, they get kind of this darkness, but also this kind of joy and, and gleefulness at the same time. It, it's, um, I'm going to tell you how I backed into knowing their work. I, I, I came to know them in kind of a, an unusual way, I think. Uh, I first encountered them as a kid when I got the cast recording of uh, On the 20th Century. Oh, I love that. And... I mean, when there, there's the fight between Oscar and Lily, and uh, she's going, my life is simply great, and my silverware is gold through my Bel Air escape, champagne's a flowing river. And then all of a sudden, uh, Oscar sings something about a million farmhands rape you, talking about how she has become a commodity and a sexual being and no longer the actress that Oscar had raised. Right. And nurtured. That is just such a, a, a weird thought to put in the middle of that song. Yeah. And so. Wait, was, but, and yet it comes from this place of truthfulness, too. It, 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 entirely. And so all of a sudden I thought, okay, I want to get to know who these people are. And I found, I think at Rose Records up in Chicago, uh, the, the new cast recording, the two uh, LP set of a party with uh, Betty Comden made up green. Right. And so then I started learning all of those things. But again, you know, I, I'm like a teenager. I'm not, not even a been 13 yet. And you get to their lost word or lost language or simplified language, which they'd written with uh, Cy Coleman for a review off Broadway. And the giddiness of the way they were shoving words together <laughs> and creating a genderless language and again, they were merry and they were smart and they were also kind of dark. I mean, you yeah. know, the, the genitalia became a panina yes. <laughs> in their new language. So, um, yeah, they, they, they're just marvelous. And, and, even, and it's the, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no I, was, I was just going to say, the other thing that always surprises me when I come back to them is all the shows they wrote that I forgot they wrote that are wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, there, there's so many pieces of what we consider musical theater history. Yeah. That, you know, who had thought about Wonderful Town uh, you know, until 2004? 
yeah. when that revival hit Broadway. What's interesting to me is that basically it had not left the stage in New York from when it premiered in the early 50s until the early 60s. There was always some kind of revival happening. Elaine Stritch did it. Pat Carroll did it. It was off-Broadway. It was at City Center. Well, and it, I not too long ago I found the, the TV version of it. Uh, the one, it. It's quite fun. And so they're, they're wonderful gems that we have that chronicle a changing New York because they they centered so many of their pieces in New York. You have the 1940s with uh, On the Town. Then you have Wonderful Town, which takes us back to the 30s. Bells are ringing, gives us the 50s. And then in this marvelous departure that I just don't think anybody got their hands around, they gave us homelessness in the 1960s in subways are for sleeping. Yeah. And in between, you have other things like the review to on the aisle. You have, uh, let's look at the jukebox business and, you know, mafia taking over the jukebox with Joe Ramey. I mean, they, they chose some really wonky stories to tell. And as you say, there was always a wondrous heart to it and also a little bit of darkness. And, and, I, and I, I guess for me, the, the, maybe the masterpiece of the career is Singing in the Rain. And it, you know what? I, I had never sat down and watched quite to the level that I did for this book. Yeah. all of their movies. Yeah. And what kind of struck me about Singing in the Rain and The Bandwagon, which I actually, I, I, I'm, I'm an outlier. I like Bandwagon a little bit better. It's an awesome they, movie. They, they were like the king and queen of the jukebox musical on screen. Yeah. And, and, they, and they don't feel that way. And they don't feel that way. And I think that anyone who is, I'd rather they not trying to construct a jukebox musical look at the way in which <laughs> I'm sorry. I like my original musical. <laughs> look at the way they managed to take songs and integrate them seamlessly as if they're almost book numbers. They're not perfect. Yeah. Uh, but I think the one that, that astounded me and I pointed out in the book is that in good news, which was based on an original 1920s musical. They had to interpolate one number that MGM owned the rights to and they wanted to use. And it was Pass the Peace Pipe by uh, Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. Uh, It was Roger Edens. I'm sorry, that one is escaping me. In any event, they managed to take this song that has nothing to do with the original story, and they've revamped the story somewhat but they create a scene in which the hero, played by Peter Lawford, is feeling down that he can't get the, the snooty girl he wants to you know, be dating at this university. And lo and behold, Joan McCracken says, well, you know, you've got to buck up. And, you know, what did the Native Americans do? She didn't use that word back in 1940, whatever it was. And they pass the peace pipe. And all of a sudden, this song <laughs> becomes this big production number in a soda shop for these college kids. Uh, it works. It works perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, and that that's the other thing that I can't stress enough about what I, I so came to respect 
from them, both in their movie work and their stage work, is the amount of craft that yeah. they, they brought to their storytelling. And it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's really subtle how beautifully constructed something is. Yeah. And in terms of the movies, what I found remarkable, and I hope you enjoyed this, this the, the, the bits that landed on the, the cutting room floor or were not adopted into final screenplays that really gave through lines even to some of the flimsiest material. Yeah. Uh, since we were talking about the bandwagon, may I use that example? Yeah. About uh, Fred Astaire's paintings. If uh, you or the listeners remember, there comes this moment in time when Fred Astaire character is out on the road with a musical that is having a really bad out of town tryout for reasons we won't go into. And Sid Charisse goes to his hotel room and there are all of these old French master paintings in there. And she's like, what are these? And he goes, well, I sold my house and I'm just like wanting, want to add them around me. And then ultimately these become the plot point for when the director is fired and the show's about to be closed out of town, Fred Astaire sells the paintings and rescues, saves the day, right? Well, those come out of nowhere. And it's like, well, well you know, this is really cheesy writing. You know, you're, you're setting up the, the save. What was fascinating to me is that in the screenplay as approved by MGM, there was a scene at the very beginning where you saw a woman inspecting Fred Astaire's California home. And she's willing to buy it as long as she doesn't have to have the awful artwork. <laughs> and so not only did Betty and Adolf go swipe in at Nouveau Riche bad taste, right. they set up the, whole, the one, two, three of why those paintings would be there to save the day. Yeah when they needed to save the day. Right. Uh, similarly, in Anti-Name, there's a scene in one of the drafts where they have Maine and Patrick going to MoMA, and she's explaining uh, Picasso to him. How awesome. And, and I don't know how, I, I mean, I can watch Anti-Name left, right, and center, and I always wonder why there's that Picasso painting that he's hand-drawn above the painting when they have no money at Christmas time. Well, lo and behold, they'd set that up. Right. And Maine's comment, you know, uh, Picasso in his black and blue period. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talk to me a little bit, if you can, about how they wrote. Like, you know, were they in the same room? Did they write fast? Did they write slow? Did they ponder a lot before they wrote? They were always in the same room. Uh, until he died, uh, my understanding is they were still having daily meetings. Uh, awesome. And that, like, I'm trying to remember how he described it. He, he described himself as being basically a lazy bum lying around and uh, that, that she would pace nervously. That is the uh, kind of description of the way he characterized their, their writing relationship. That's very funny and, that they would have, like, such different kinds of energy in the process. Oh, totally different energy. I mean, even if you look at some of the, the pictures, I mean, there's small wonder that she played Garbo 
in the movie Garbo Talks late in life. I mean, she was a fashion plate beyond compare. And I try to bring that out with a couple of the the wonky asides that I put in the book. Uh, Whereas he was kind of rumbled and, you know, just out for a good time. I mean, you had this stately (laughs) woman and then this this kind of, you know, go from, from the Bronx. In any event, they could write fast, um, but they were always together. Sometimes it took them forever. Yeah. What I, I think is most interesting about the energy that I sense from them whenever they were collaborating, and this came out particularly when I was going through materials for my Psychoman book, is that the sense of improv- improvisation and collaboration that was part and parcel of their beginning with the reviewers. And we, I've not mentioned that one of the other reviewers happened to be a woman named Judy Tuvin, which is the Jewish Hebrew word for holiday. And Judy Tuvin became the award-winning actress, Judy Holiday. Yeah. But they would all sit around and spitball their ideas in a diner, polish it, and then get it up on its feet on Friday night. And in listening to work tapes with uh, Cy Coleman, you can hear that even, you know, what was that, 35, 40 years down the line, they still had that same energy. And let's try this, let's try this. And a lot of laughter and a lot of glee. And I, I feel like you can feel that in the finished product. You can. I, I think you can without a doubt. I mean, it, there's something that's incredibly effortless about uh, both their books when they were writing the book for a musical and their lyrics. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's like sometimes a little, a little wild. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they'll go over the map, but you know, just in time, I found you just in time. What a simple, and yet it, it's effortless and it's the way we talk. I mean, yeah, it feels like the character that like that's how the character talks, and also it has this huge meaning and resonance underneath it. Exactly, and and that that's the funny thing about them is I think that you know let's face it they they worked on a landmark musical and then a landmark or two landmark uh, movie musicals. And, I mean, I I have to say that working on the chapters about On the Town and Singing in the Rain in particular were quite daunting to me because that film and that musical have been dissected left, right, and center from the point of view of Gene Kelly and Stanley Donut in the case of Singing in the Rain and in terms of Jerome Robbins and Leonard Bernstein was On the Town. And it's like that they they brought so much to the table too. And yet it, it's so effortless. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it feels like the characters are just talking. They're just talking and, Oh, look at how beautifully it's filmed. And isn't that dance in the rain? Great. Yeah. But they had to set all of this up. They, they had to provide the framework. And, And you never hear Compton and green in the lyrics. No. You yeah, always, they, they, you, it's always inside this story where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even even with something like um, 
one of their lesser known ones. Uh, oh, why? I apologize. You know, uh, the Carol Burnett musical. Oh, fade out. Fade, fade out. out fade out in. I mean, all of those sound as though they could have ended up two years later on the Carol Burnett show because they're so attuned to that character and that personality. And that's, I think, also something that is key to them. They could write for personality. Yeah. And they knew how to tailor the lyric for both the character and the performer who was originating the role. Um, And in some instances, this is a great uh, example of their collaborative spirit, is that... Rosalind Russell felt that she needed one more song in Wonderful Town. And it, she said it needs to be something about I Can't Get a Man. And instantly, <laughs> meaning the character, not Rosalind right. Russell. Uh, Tom Green and Bernstein went to a bluesy place. And she goes, no, 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 no. It's got to have the rhythm of ba bum ba bum ba bum And she wanted a jokey song. And that's how you ended up with 100 Easy Ways to Lose a Man. Which is really funny. <laughs> Which is really funny. But, I mean, again, how, I can't think of a lot of songwriters where the stories are that explicit about them going, oh, okay, this is what you want. Let's, like, we can do that. Yeah. And then fitting it in so perfectly to character, yeah. performer, and to the script overall. And come up with such a winner. And what's also really interesting to me I think more than other theater writers, they were constantly jumping around with different collaborators. Indeed. I and, mean, and like the, and the, their work changed as they paired up with different composers, and, which I just think is really interesting. It seems like not too many writers do that. Uh, lyricists and composers tend to stick together. And yet that innate also freewheeling enough and open enough that they could go from... Leonard Bernstein to Julie Stein. I mean, that, that's a pretty wide goal. To, to Cy Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> to Cy Coleman. Uh, you know, Cy Coleman, who had the best of both of those. Yeah. Um, to uh, Larry Grossman. Right. You know, and they, with uh, A Doll's Life. And yet, the, it, they, they just thrived in, in having this newness around them. Uh, it's astonishing to me, really, and I have to. Well, I mean, is that maybe that's part of their um, their talent at being chameleons. I think so. I think that uh, they're, they're total chameleons. They wanted to get into the the characters because that's where they started. They knew what they'd want to be singing, and let's face it, they wrote themselves two roles in all the town. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and late in life, you know, it's, it's kind of great that they both got there. You know, their screen days uh, late in life with movies like Garbo Talks. And uh, he had that wondrous movie, Simon. If you ever want just a dumb movie to watch, it was a oh, movie. Oh, yes. I've, I've actually got that on my list because you mentioned it in the book. I, I have to say, Scott, it was one of the, the, the best times I've had with a movie, you know, a movie I'd never thought about before. And then he was uh, also in uh, uh, My Favorite Year, right? He was yeah. in my favorite year. Yeah. Uh, he was the, the, the Looney Tune uh, producer of that show. Yeah. Uh, but Adolf as this 
guru slash uh, religious leader who has turned to television as God. I mean, I, I just I tried to describe it and do it justice in the book that the hymnal is the TV God and uh, their their songs are um, television jingles, right? And it, it's like two scenes, and it's utterly blithesome. And watching that or Betty in uh, the Bernadette Peters film, the the New York one, where she's like playing this chatty Upper East Side dame on the Lower East Side, you know, early 1980s party. And it's like, that's her. I think you can get everything you need to know about Betty and Adolph from those two films on some level. Yeah. You know, you know, one of my favorite things ever was that we got to see the two of them in the, the Follies concert in the yeah. mid 80s. Yeah. Um, it, you know, not just see the two of them, but see the two of them together, doing a number together. It was just kind of wonderful. And and seeing them together, even if you can find an old VHS tape or, you know, somebody who's transferred it to DVD, of them doing all of their material in that party with Compton and Green. Yeah. That was on PBS in the 70s. I mean, they they rip into mysterious lady like nobody's business. And they're just having a great time. They, you see how much they love the theater. Yeah. And I think that's something else that comes out in, you know, via the, the silly do- dentist in Bells Are Ringing who wants to write the musical theater. Yes. Uh, to the, the, the insanity of Veronique, the, the musical within the yes. musical that we see briefly in, on the 20th century. I mean, they just have a great time. And they have an encyclopedic knowledge of the, the form. And so when they make jokes about it, it's really coming from a very well-informed place. Do, do you have any sense if they had a favorite piece or... or the two of them had different favorite pieces of theirs? <clears throat> I, I don't have a sense of them, them having picked a favorite. I would, if I were a betting man and I had a Ouija board and were to be able to ask it, <laughs> I'm betting you that they would point to On the Town because I think that on some levels, it captured everything that they wanted to capture in their art. I, I would guess that after that, it might be on the 20th century. I love that show. I, I mean, I've got to tell it's you. It's so incredibly smart and incredibly funny. It, it, yeah. And it, it's also, if you think about it, at least for my money, incredibly daring for 1978. <laughs> yes. I, I mean... How many people sit down and say, okay, we're going to write operetta in an era in which rock is so desperately trying to make, get itself through? And yet, it's the perfect choice for that It's story. the perfect choice. Yeah. And it's not, it's not something that anybody else probably would have said, hey, this is the voice for this. Exactly. They, they, it needed to be them. And, you know, Coleman said that uh, he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to write dirty speeches. And it wasn't until they all sat down and he played something grandiose on the piano. And they're like, oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's interesting. I wonder why nobody revives it. I think that it's because that original production was so visually daunting. Yeah. And also, you have to have a lead actress who has that incredible range and classical training to be and, able to do and huge comic chops and huge comic chops. That's why I think that you know, uh, Kristen Chenoweth was so wondrous right. back uh, a few years back when Roundabout revived it. But I mean, there aren't a lot of stars out there that have that range. I mean, for my money, I would love to see Laura Benanti do it. Yeah. Uh, because she would, you know, let's face it, she's, she's a funny lady. Yeah. And she's got that range. Yeah. Um, but in an era in which belting is more valued oftentimes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's a role that requires something different. And I guess it's too big a show for most of the regional theaters. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you, you deal with all of the the grandiosity yeah. that they built in? And I mean, they're, they're, therein lies an interesting lesson in Condon's gift for opening up. I mean, the, the original play is set entirely within the the train and yet they open it up to have the flashbacks and you're outside the train and you're doing this and you're doing that and so all of a sudden what could have been very claustrophobic has a sweep that a lot of people associate with musical theater yes right and right. you know an openness do, do you have any thoughts about you know, did, did did Comden and Green take the art form forward? Did they move us along, or were they just amazing at what they were doing? I, I think that they did uh, move it. I forward. mean, I think you're right about the the irony and and sarcasm and all that. That there was some of that in early musical theater, but it does seem like like it was different with them, with On the Town and Wonderful Town and so forth. Yeah, I think that that, and this is going to sound as though I, I'm dismissing their contribution, but if I think about the humor of, let's say, a Cole Porter, or of a Noel Coward, or even an Ira Gershwin, there, there's almost that's a very erudite, and uh, in the case of Porter and a very down-to-earthness in Gershwin. I think that what Compton and Green did, and I'm, I'm saying this, and you're going to get all kinds of hate mail, they did more than that. Um, <laughs> it, it's like they brought Mad Magazine. They brought zaniness yeah. to, to the proceedings. Yeah. And, 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 and that sense of wildness and... and, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to happen next. We, nothing is sacred. There are no sacred cows in this room. And I think that... Wait, that is, it, is it that they were that they were more adult about their content? 
I think they were more adults. But, I mean, at, at the same time, if one looks at, I'm going to use something that is that's vaguely contemporaneous. Let's look at Kiss Me Kate. Yeah. Uh, had Betty and Adolph written Kiss Me Kate, it would have been much more insidery. And the the digs would have gone in a very different direction. I don't think that they would have written quite as deeply felt a love story. Their love story would have been with the process of getting that show up. Right. And right. And and that that's something that was unique to them. And I think that whereas if if one looks to pull through a thread of musicality or choreography or even directional f- flow in musical theater, you can go, okay, you had this, you had this, you had, or you had this person, this person, this person. They're the building right. blocks. Right. I think what Betty and Adolf brought to it just allowed lyricists and book writers to explore in different ways. Would we have had Guys and Dolls were it not for On the Town? Probably. But, I mean, I think Guys and Dolls is a, a close cousin to On the Town. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that's – it's an ephemeral contribution, but a very solid one and a very necessary one. And and their their work spanned this huge section of musical theater history. Yeah. I mean, they they worked uh, 44 to 91. And yes, there were some barren years in there as we hit the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. But they, they continued to work and create. And a lot of what and people have asked me if I wanted to do or would ever consider doing a complete lyrics of book. Right. And I, I said... I really don't think it's possible because a lot of what they were doing at that point in time was specialty material. Right. And there was one, one year that the Tonys, they wrote all of the parodies that opened the show. <laughs> I didn't know that. How nice. And I didn't realize it until a very fortuitous moment that I had just been pointed toward some video on YouTube and I'd watched the opening sequence. And a week and a half later, I was at the public library, and I found their typed lyric sheets. I'm like, oh, that's, I just heard that. Huh, they wrote that. And so I think that they were continuing to contribute, but they were paying honor to the history. And let's face it, musicals were changing, and there's a different rhythm that was necessary for a lot of lyrics. Yeah. Uh, and yet, I, I think that it was very brave of them and very much in keeping. That's one thing we've not talked about, which is their their love of strong women characters and yeah. working women. Yeah. Uh, there aren't a lot of them. There are strong women characters, but there aren't a lot of women that own businesses. Right. Yeah, that's true. I'd never thought about that. Uh, and so, you know, you've got, or, or, you know, are striking out on the ground. So you have Hildy. Yeah. You have, uh, Ruth wanting to be a, 
and then you get a business owner in bells and ringing. Right. And so when you get to a doll's life and, you know, what happens after Nora leaves, oh, what were they doing writing that? It's in a direct continuum yeah. in my mind. Yeah, yeah, that's, re- that's really interesting. That Well, you know, part of the reason that I was psyched about the book was I feel like younger musical theater fans aren't aware of Condon and Green, even though they may be aware of some of their shows. Um, and, and I just thought it was so nice that, that, that you did this, that we have this history of Condon and Green, all their cool work, all the wild, interesting stuff they did. I, I, it was a labor, I mean, it was an utter joy to work on the book. And may I do an awful plug for a second? Yeah. In terms of introducing uh, younger readers to a panoply of musical theater history. Yeah. Uh, in September, I, I bit the bullet when asked to write it, and I know I'm going to get a lot of haters. Hmm. Uh, the 100 Most Important People in Musical Theater History. Nice. Will be hit, hitting stores. Okay, so I bet that was incredibly hard to make that list. Uh, just a bit. Yeah. Uh, particularly when I, I, I chose some real outliers. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was an interesting and utterly marvelous, and I feel very privileged that someone, a publisher came to me and said, hey, do you want to write this? And nice. you, can create the, you can create the list. Right. And... Um, I think that in the there are 91 essays. You got what? Why 91? Well, Common and Green count as two. Right. So uh, there are 91 essays that will introduce readers to folk going back to Gilbert and Sullivan. That's kind of the beginning, all the way through Lin Manuel. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. And so. It's something I feel quite strongly about that I think that there is an incredible history to this form that in an age where we're very much in the moment on our phones, that looking back every now and then is not a bad thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And and you've done a book about Cy Coleman, right? Right. Have you done any other musical theater books? Uh, No, that was my first. I... um, I worked as a theater critic for about 20 years in New York. Oh, cool. And um, after a while, 300 or so shows a year took a toll. <laughs> yeah, I can And I decided to step back and write long and not necessarily on an overnight deadline. Right. And so the side book was my first. Betty and Adolph the second, now the hundred. And um, I'm just gearing up to work on one on uh, Candidate. Nice. So that's really cool. Well, so I want to ask you a question that I ask a lot of people when I interview them. Sure. I'm convinced that we're right smack dab in the middle of another golden age of musical theater. And I'm curious if you agree. Now, you're asking a man who up until years ago was seeing everything that opened in New York. <laughs> now has been away for three years. Are we in a golden age of musical theater? I I think the gauntlet has been thrown down 
by a number of works in the past, let's just say 20 years, since the new millennium. I think that works like uh, The Band's Visit, uh, Next to Normal, you know, if if I don't say Hamilton, you think I'm an idiot. No, Hamilton. That there is a lot of incredible new energy and uh, even be more chill. Yeah. new energy coming into the musical theater. And that's one of the things. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, uh, Pasek and Paul. Obviously, people are still wanting to write and tell stories in this form that is uniquely American. And, and I love how many successful pop writers want to write in our art form. Yeah. I mean, I seen I, I you saw last week, uh, earlier this week, well, it's Monday, so last week, Paul McCartney's written It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Um, and Cindy Lauper, I, you know, Kinky Boots, and yeah. I hear she's working on uh, Working Girl, which I always thought would be a terrific musical. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is, and this is where I challenge not the creators, but the people who are bringing the work to the stage to take more risks, and I know it's a terribly expensive art form. Yeah. But that I worry that so many new musicals are going to be relegated to obscurity simply by the fact they never reached the stage because it's so darn expensive or because somebody will not take the chance. Yeah. Although the the, the flip side of that is even the, the new really cool shows that don't, succeed in New York, there are now companies all over the country that are strange. doing Passing Strange and Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and even there, I mean, the, the amount of work that it takes to get something like uh, a Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson to into the Newman at the public and then onto Broadway, I mean, it, it's blearying. And and all these companies around the country, including ours, are doing these shows because we heard about them on or off Broadway. Right. You know, so, you know, occasionally we do a show that hasn't been in New York yet, but that's less frequent. Yeah. And and so, I mean, there are organizations like the National Alliance of Musical Theater that I think does a bang up job of creating consortiums to try to foster new musicals. Yeah. Uh, And... uh, Come from away is you know one of their their oh, premier successes. Amazing. Uh, and so, I, I, and part of where I'm coming from is that for many years I was a reader for the O'Neill's National Music Theater Conference. Oh, cool. So I an incredible awareness of some of the genuinely exciting stuff right. that that people are creating that no one has ever heard of. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting around going, wow, I can't believe I'm getting to hear this. This needs to be heard now. I mean, a great example was um, We Live in Cairo, which I think I just saw as being done in Boston. And that was something that those writers had been working on for eight years. Yeah. And it's a fascinating look at the, the Spring Uprising from both a before and after perspective. And you know, it was one of the shows that was workshopped at the O'Neill, and I'm delighted 
that this this kind of storytelling did manage to get Lisa to, to the stages in Boston. Hopefully it will come to New York and you guys will be doing it in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I've been told uh, repeatedly by a lot of people that the, the big regional theaters won't do a show unless it's been on or off Broadway and got good reviews. Right. And that, and so, you know, those bigger theaters around the country aren't doing the weirder, stranger, more interesting things uh, if they haven't had some commercial success. Exactly. I mean, you know, um, look at something like, uh, I, I don't know, made it to Broadway, Liz Estrada Jones, which is... I love that show. It's an utter delight. Now, I got to say, I had some problems with it once it was Broadway, but when I saw it at downtown in the gym, boy, it worked like nobody's business. Yeah. Uh, and some of Michael John Chu's musicals, I mean, Queen of the Mist, you know, that's getting done in London right now. Uh, but I think that his work is so perfect for smaller theaters and adventuresome and heartfelt and challenging. Uh, you know, it, it's a musical vernacular that isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea, at yeah. least not yet. Right. Uh, so I think we are in an age, I think that it's just one that I want to be very guarded about because I'm concerned about the dissemination. Yeah. Well, we need more theaters around the country who are braver. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you guys are great. Uh, it's speakeasy in Boston, uh, up in Chicago. I can't remember the name of the theater, but there's one in Chicago that specializes in the lesser known musicals right. that, yeah, they're, they're out there and we need more of them. Yeah. And hopefully one day y'all get like really big endowments and you can start, you know, yeah. new musicals too. Exactly. That'd be awesome. Well, Hey, thank you. Thank you first for writing this book. I, I, it was an absolute delight to read. I had so much fun and kept going, Oh, that's right. They did that show. Oh, they did that show. I'm, I'm so glad you had fun with it because I wanted to capture their spirit. And yeah, you did, you did, you did. I, and, and it, you know, breeze it along. And, I, you know, it was Oxford University Press, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to use a lot of footnotes because that'll bog it down and they're not about yeah. footnotes. No. Yeah, this is, this I, is really fun. Project's fun. And it, and it sent me back to all these old shows. I was like, oh, God, i got to get that cast album out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I haven't listened to Subway for Subways are sleeping for a long time. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm delighted, and thank you for this opportunity to let me talk about it, yeah, and uh, also for plugging that new one. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Well, keep it up, and uh, yeah, let, let me know when the new one's out. We'll talk about that, too, if that sounds Perfect. incredibly <laughs> interesting. Uh, and, you know, you can go, why? You know, you can you know, take me to task about why people are in there and who isn't. <laughs> we can Every once in a while, for my blog, I'll do a list post about, you know, something. And, you know, always, well, what about this? What about this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I had to narrow it to a list, okay? Yeah, they were only, they only gave me a hundred. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, uh, well, thank you, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. This is Scott Miller. Now you, too, have achieved stage rock. See you next time.